Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. So he basically called me a racist because I was asking questions about communist China regime. So, I mean, I just find that it's, it's, it's so, uh, it, it's not even worthy, I felt, of even a response because it's so low. But what's particularly disturbing about it, Roy, is this is exactly what the communist government in China uses to try to shut down dissent. The deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada on this program about three weeks ago, speaking about her exchange with uh, the Prime Minister about the biosecurity lab in Winnipeg. We're going to be talking about that as part of our segment coming up. Uh, And the response from the Prime Minister, where he suggested somewhat slyly that maybe uh, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party was hedging toward racism when she was doing anything of the kind. Holden is the... uh, Director Emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. He's an expert on China. He was uh, stationed in China as a diplomat for this country on a new number of occasions. And we always appreciate speaking with Professor Holden, political science professor at the University of Alberta as well, about the issues between China and this country. So as you look at a number of issues to talk about as far as China and the relationships of China with this country and other countries, uh, is concerned. As you look at what came out of the G7, are you encouraged? Do you feel that something substantive has happened, or did they conclude what they were going to talk about before they even began the the G7 meetings when they come out saying they're going to fight climate change and agree to challenge China's non-market economic practices and call out Beijing for rights abuses in Jinping and Hong Kong? And the prime minister said that he had had conversations with Joe Biden, President Biden, about the two Michaels. Was that all agreed to before they started? My experience is that these things are carefully pre-cooked. The last thing the officials and perhaps even leaders want is blow up disputes as a a captain action can in 2018. So the text uh, painfully negotiated. I'm not suggesting it can't be changed uh, at the the last minute or at the meeting itself. I think more important is the chemistry of the leaders that get to size each other up and get to know each other a bit better, look each other in the eyes. That, I think, has real value. Um, and that's been suspended, of course, thanks to COVID. But the actual texts and agreements, those are 90%, I'd argue, hammered out by officials uh, weeks, sometimes even months before the actual meeting. Okay. So let me ask you, before we get into any other issues, about uh, the relationship between China and Canada. Let's start with the what should be the most important to us, and that is the fate of two Canadians who have been held hostage by China. Um, Michael Kovrich for, I think, 915 days today, 915 days for Michael Kovrich. What, what are the two Michaels to the Xi government? Are they just useful pawns in a fight with Canada over Meng Jiawen? I think that is the case. Um, the, the timing of their arrest just days after the, the detention of Madame Meng is, was suspicious from the get-go. And the Chinese have danced around the question of whether they're linked or not, mostly saying they haven't been, but this, uh, the mask has slipped on a couple occasions. Um, on the other hand, I mean, it hasn't worked for them, has it? And what we haven't seen, thank goodness, is uh, at any given time, there are tens of thousands of Canadian citizens in China, not counting Hong Kong, where there are 300,000. What we haven't seen is repetition of that. If that was working really well, 
or if, they, if the Chinese side thought that would work, um, they could have and might have detained many more. The fact that those two, sadly, for them and their families and all of us, uh, tells me that uh, that that tactic hasn't worked and the Chinese recognize it hasn't worked, so far at least. You, in 2019, and uh, you've talked to us about this in the past, but I want to bring it up again. In 2019, you led a Canadian delegation to China, including, uh, included in the delegation, were several former cabinet ministers in Stephen Harper's government. When you consider that uh, your own personal experience, and over the years, Gordon, with China, and then you look at what's been developing or what's been uh, said and the exchanges that have happened, generally one-sided with China challenging Canada, with the Chinese ambassadors to Canada being uh, very rough on this country in their evaluations and assessment of who we are, how does China view Canada? What is Canada to China, to the Chinese government? Well, I think um, I try to be just as objective as I can. Um, our importance to China has been declining over time as China has risen. Um, back in 1970, when we established relations, um, we were uh, relatively more powerful internationally, one could argue, perhaps even than China itself. Our economy was larger than China's. Uh, China's economy has expanded far faster and, than, than Western economies, and they have more sense of themselves and they have more clout internationally than they did before. I think we still matter. We just matter somewhat less. And when it comes to this federal government defending China, and we just heard the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada on this program three weeks ago, played the voice clip where the prime minister accused uh, Candace Bergen of edging toward racism for her challenges, and it had to do with the biosecurity lab. And I'm going to I'll ask you about that in a moment. When it comes to this government defending uh, China, and the health minister suggesting a reporter who was asking questions about COVID in the early days of COVID might be heading toward being racist toward China, uh, does that does that serve any purpose other than trying to ingratiate yourself with Beijing? Uh, how do you assess what's being done here? Well, it might be that, or perhaps trying to ingratiate themselves with the almost two million um, strong community of Canadians of Chinese heritage. I think playing the race card is a very tricky thing that should, as much as possible, be minimized. Uh, that said, I do know that a lot of Canadians of Chinese heritage feel uncomfortable um, because while I think the, the political and, and uh, reporters, political reporters, uh, are, can and must be critical of China as needed, sometimes in the public, it just colors their whole impression of the country and the people um, with all of the subtlety gone. And they may, and you've seen an uptick in the number of anti-Asian uh, hate crimes in this country. Uh, and so it's, but you can't stop, nor should we try to stop people from being critical of China where it's warranted. So I'm, I'm of the view that we need to fire away freely when we see things we don't like, and there's lots to not like. Um, on the other hand, I think it doesn't hurt I think it helps to continue to make it clear that we're not talking about Chinese people, we're not talking about Chinese cultural language, we're just focused on the actions of the Chinese government and the party. And I think that distinction needs to be continued to be made so that the public at large um, don't get carried away with anti-China sentiment sh shifting into anti-Chinese sentiment. So it's, I think it takes a little bit of subtlety, but... People should not feel constrained in being critical. We're a free country, a democracy, free press. Um, go for it. 
just try and separate, I would plead, between criticisms of what the Chinese government does and the people who are uh, who don't run their government, quite frankly. They didn't elect it. They didn't choose it. So blaming all of them for what the government does is particularly unfair. Yeah, focused questions and focused challenges of what Beijing is doing is what it's about. And if the challenges are deserved and, and earned, then that's what we must do. But we must also understand that it has nothing to do with the person who just happens to be living next door, who happens to be Asian. This is a, this is a, a challenge of a government and policies as opposed to taking on and, uh, and degrading individual people. This completely different Ab- reality. But you're right. It has to be reminded. We, we at least have to keep it in mind. But we should also have... A situation where you don't have a prime minister suggesting to a deputy leader of the conservative party, the official opposition party, that you're being racist when you're asking questions about the access of PLA, People's Liberation Army scientists, to the Winnipeg Biosecurity Lab. That's a, I mean, those, if anybody's mixing up uh, the, the the issue or, or or playing fast and loose with uh, with credibility, it's it's Trudeau if he's doing that to uh, Bergen. What I have to come back to the two Michaels Gordon. What is it that gets these men out of Chinese custody? What gets them out of the Beijing government's custody? Is there only one way? Yeah, I wish there were multiple ways. I think there's maybe variations on the one way. And I I think the, the solution to the Meng Wanzhou case is inextricably linked in Chinese eyes. Not in our eyes, but in theirs. And that matters since they hold the two Michaels. I think a key component, though, is the United States. And I think that's the background reason why we saw our ambassador in Washington recently, our ambassador to Beijing in Washington, and why uh, Prime Minister Trudeau raised two Michaels with President Biden. This whole thing started with the detention of Madame Meng. Um, it will end, I suspect, with either overt, an open U.S. role, or behind-the-scenes U.S. role in solving the issue of Madame Meng on that extradition request. Uh, but the, I don't see it happening right away. Um, if it was going to be easy to solve in terms of working with Washington, it would have been done two years ago. It isn't, and it won't be done right away, in my view. But I, I fear that that is the only way. Madame Meng, in some fashion, is allowed to leave. North America, um, and that probably means an important U.S. role and probably direct discussions between uh, the United States and China. At least they have discussions at a senior level, which we don't have any longer since this uh, uh, conundrum arose back in 2018. Okay, let me go to the Winnipeg story, or the Winnipeg Biosecurity Lab story. What's your overview of this developing situation, the loose ends and the concerns about People's Liberation Army access to supposedly the most secure microbiology laboratory in Canada, one of the most secure laboratories in the country, in the world, where the most dangerous pathogens on Earth are stored and studies. Uh, we had two scientists walked out of the lab and fired, and CSIS had concerns, I imagine still has concerns, and the Trudeau government is refusing to comply with the Parliamentary Committee's demands for complete information into this situation. How do you put all that together? Well, it's, um, I think there's, at the minimum, some errors in, in administrative procedures. That's at the most benign end of it. And at the other end, and I, I can't, I won't speak to potential roles of those two particular scientists in detail because I don't know the 
all the detail, which is details held by the RCMP and by CSIS and by the and by the um, uh, Canadian Health Agency and Health Canada uh, and the Chinese, I presume. But um, when you're involving um, highly sensitive um, level four labs, there's only a handful of them on Earth, there's only one in Canada, um, caution is needed. And it would appear that, at a minimum, some rules were bent or broken as a lack of oversight. Um, we, we don't know um, whether these two scientists who were escorted out of the lab, uh, whether they were bending the rules or they had been undermining the rules deliberately um, to benefit China. Uh, both are possibilities. I, I, I would hope that we get some clarity, um, but often when you're dealing with issues of intelligence and analysis, um, there is the agencies involved themselves, that includes CSIS, as if they don't want to be out in the sunshine because it reveals their methods and approaches and how they do business. So I, I think we may, it may be some time and we may never know the complete story. And sometimes intelligence is uncertain as its outcomes, a bit like the U.S. government now looking at the origins of COVID-19. Uh, intelligence agencies, President Biden just said today at Cornwall at the G7, uh, I'm not really sure about the origins of COVID-19 because the intelligence community is not certain either. And I think in our case, a smaller case, but important, um, we, even intelligence agencies may not be certain as to why this happened. Mm-hmm. Was it just collaboration with people they knew in Wuhan, or was it something more sinister? I hope we find out. But in the meantime, I would argue we do need greater caution, especially when dealing with countries that are rivals, to make sure that we're not being naive and taken advantage of. Yeah. Not the first time I've heard the word naive uh, in relation to this particular story. When you think of family of five, and four of their lives are stolen, under the circumstances we know happened, it just makes you feel ill. It makes you feel ill. Hussein Hamdani is a lawyer in Hamilton. He's a member of the Hamilton Mountain Mosque. He's a former member of what uh, was known as the Hamilton Jewish Arab Muslim Dialogue Committee. And I had something to do with the formation of that committee back in the early 2000s. And uh, the committee's objective was to foster dialogue. And uh, the committee members were frequent in-studio guests at CHML. And they were the sponsors of the 2006 presentation of Interfaith Dialogue with Judea Pearl, the father of slain journalist Daniel Pearl, and Professor Akbar Ahmed, the professor of international relations at American University in Washington, D.C. I thought of Hussein when I first encountered this terrible situation in London and called him right away and been a while since we talked and he joins me on the on the program on the chorus radio network Hussein thank you for coming on with us and uh, condolences to you and everyone in the Muslim community in this country uh, Roy thank you so much for the, the kind words and the condolences um, really uh, really appreciate you saying that and congratulations on getting your second dose that's fantastic I'm so uh, I, I want to congratulate you and also thank you for this opportunity to speak. Well, I feel lucky that I've had my second dose. Um, well, fortunate. And uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll move forward now. Hussein, do you consider the horror of a family of five being attacked in a terrible way and thinking of a nine-year-old boy who has to live with this for the rest of his life? 
um, four family members dying. Is that the action of one deranged individual, or is it a reflection of a greater issue within Canada and an issue specific to Muslims in Canada, do you think? Yeah, no, it's bigger than just one deranged individual. I'm going to share with you and your and your listeners a statistic that should embarrass all Canadians, and that is more Muslims have died in Canada for being Muslim than in any other country in the G7 in the last five years. Think about that. I mean, we we have the smallest Muslim population, um, and yet we have at least three incidents in which Muslims were murdered simply because they were Muslim by perpetrators who didn't even know them, but just knew that they were Muslim. And so this isn't just happenstance. This isn't just one, you know, murderous individual in London. This, unfortunately, is uh, the third incident in the last five years in which 11 Canadians who are Muslim have died. And so we need to look at this in a much bigger and broader sense than just a one-off incident that we can just kind of pass off as, you know, sometimes sometimes bad things happen once in a while. You know, that is such a shocking statistic that you just quoted about the G7 and uh, and Canada and Muslims dying. It really is. It's it, it's, it it's When you first told me this off the air, it, it, I, I, I looked it up. Not that I didn't believe you, but I looked it up. And it's really, really disturbing because we've done programs on, on the issue of lack of tolerance and hatred uh, directed toward um, uh, religious uh, groups within the country, particularly, and it's it's right there. It stares right at you. That that number stares right at you. Who said? You know, when, and, and look, we're, and we sometimes maybe maybe may I would speak personally. I don't want to speak for for all Canadians, but you know, I look at the United States and I think, man, what an awful gun culture they have, and how many mass shootings they have, and and sometimes I may be even smug in thinking that that we're so much better off in Canada because of our, you know, respect for the rule of law and our tolerance for one another. And yet, even though there's 10 times more Muslims in the United States, Canada still leads that, that, that number of, of murder. When you saw the massive response from the people of London and people in communities across Canada, that must have been encouraging, yeah? Absolutely. It wasn't just like... Look, my, my, my emails blew up. My, I know the family. I lived in London for three years, and I know um, uh, the family. One person who spoke at the, at the funeral, I'm not sure if all, your, if all your listeners got to see it, Dr. Ali Islam, he's a friend of mine. And, um, and I know when I, when I spoke to him earlier this week, he was saying how, how encouraged the family is, how encouraged the community is with the response that we got from, uh, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but just ordinary Canadians, just ordinary people who said, I'm going to let the community know I stand with them. That was certainly not just encouraging, but it was so needed, you know, at the time. Yeah. Hussein, how would you suggest the issue of communicating with one another? And so we understand each other 
better and don't have these preconceived notions of who we are. I thought this morning about the dialogue committee of the early 2000s, which was comprised of members of the Muslim Arab Jewish communities. You were a member of that committee, and you addressed and spoke about divisive realities. That committee's not in 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 in, uh, in, in existence any longer. But is it time for a nationwide series of dialogue committees under a national umbrella objective? You know, it's a great point. Um, Roy, I'm going to take a step back. You know, I was on a uh, advisory committee to the, to the federal government on national security matters between 2005 and 2015. And at first, sorry, with the liberals, and then it was with the conservatives. But I was still on that that committee. And and I, this sounds very simplistic, but I said, look, for us to ensure that we have a more socially cohesive society, we really need to do three things. Um, number one, in no particular order, but just just number one. Every Canadian should feel home in Canada. So the, the government, whether it's federal or provincial, cannot have laws that are disenfranchising. No, no one should feel that they're being targeted by their government, right? And so we could have another discussion about the Quebec's Bill C-21 another time. Number two, communities need to get to know one another. Canadians need to get to know one another. You know, and, and if they do, they would realize that, you know, everyone's worrying about the same thing. Everyone's worrying about their children and their schooling. Everyone's worrying about, you know, just being a, a good person. Everyone puts their pants on one leg at a time. That our, our commonalities and our similarities dwarf those of our differences. And then the third point, though, is that communities must be self-reflective and have a zero tolerance for the propagation of hate within their communities. And so I know I took that back, and I made sure that within the Muslim community... We didn't have. We didn't have statements that are anti-Indigenous or anti-Semitic or anti-LGBT, whatever it was. We need to make sure we had zero tolerance. And so I I would say in this now uh, context that we're speaking about, uh, in terms of white supremacy, the last two points really matter. We need to get to know one another. We need to, 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 to realize how close we are. But we also need the allyship. We need the, the partnership of the white community, community to say, look, these guys who are killing are doing so in your name, in white supremacy. So we need you guys as partners and, and collaborators to ensure that this doesn't happen in your name anymore. So it's a multi-pronged uh, effort, I would say, Roy. We, we do need more dialogue. And, and I think the more we love each other and understand each other, the less hatred there will be. But we also need the white community to say to themselves, we can't allow our young people to be so far off doing things in our name that is murderous and, and frankly, un-Canadian. You know, when you mention uh, younger community, and as soon as you, actually before you said that, I was thinking along those terms, and, and my hope is always with younger generations who grow up together, who understand one another because... They do grow up together. They do the same mm-hmm. things with one another. They enjoy the same activities with one another, and they don't see each other as being different. And I experienced some of that when I was in my early teens. Uh, it was a different dynamic, but I and my you know my, my buddies were my buddies, and uh, if yeah. my parents' generation saw uh, their parents differently, that didn't mean I saw them differently. I just saw them as my friends. So the younger generations, I think, are the hope. Would you say? Would you agree? Yeah. Y- yeah. But, there's a but there. Right? Okay. The difference between your generation and, and I put myself in, you know, in my generation and the newer generation 
is that we didn't have to deal with social media the way these guys do, you know? And, and so what That's happens true. is, you know, when I was young, we had, you know, we had one TV in the house, um, and, you know, we watched hockey together as a, as a family and maybe the news together, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of choices, right? You know, you, 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 you watched it and, you know, if, if you're old like me, you had to get up and turn the channel with your hand, right? Like it was it in that remote when I first started. Um, nowadays, it's very different. You get on YouTube and you get on the Internet and there's millions upon millions of chat groups. And, and so, yes, the youth is the hope of the future, but... Uh, we need to help make sure that they don't go down rabbit holes of prejudice and bigotry. You know, it's, inter- all out there. it's interesting you say that because as you were talking, I thought, well, that individual who is charged in London is 20 years of age. Yeah. So, so when I say young people, you're right. There are external influences with the younger generations now that, that I, my generation certainly didn't face and you didn't face. And uh, that, that is a major consideration. Let me ask you this. Um, sure. How do people treat you? Have, you? have you observed, have you experienced inconsistent acts? You know, one, people may say something to your face, and later you find out when your back is turned, other things may have been said. Have you run into that? Yeah, it's actually it's a, fascinating, it's a very good question. I would say um, yes and no. So when I was younger, growing up in uh, St. Catharines, and, and I love St. Catharines, but I was growing up in St. Catharines as a young boy. I'm, you know, I'm talking, you know, when I was eight years old, nine years old, kind of like how Fofi as the, the lone survivors. Um, I was rejected service at, at grocery stores. I remember one, not not I shouldn't use plural, but I remember this. Like they refused to take my money because it was a neo-Nazi-owned place, and they they didn't want to serve someone who's who's non-white. And 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 that stained me to this day. That's like forty years ago, and I'm still remembering it like it was yesterday. But of course now, Roy. I, I mean, I, I grew up playing hockey and lacrosse. I'm a partner of a law firm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 220 pounds. I, it's not me that people target with Islamophobic uh, sayings and actions. It's, it's not me that they. They usually go after the woman in the mall who's wearing the hijab, who's you know walking with her kids. That's she's the one who often feels the victim. Uh, or that that man with uh, you know the funny name and the, and the darker colored skin who can't get a job, those are the people who face the Islamophobic actions on a day to day basis. It's not a guy like me who com- has command of the English language, who's got a secure job and right. you know and, and, and can hold his own. Right. Um, so so no, not no, I can't say I, I face it today to my face, um, but we know it exists. And it's usually Hussein, may I, may I do this? May I, yeah. I may I commit to doing a, another program with you and and yeah. get get some other people in on it, uh, and, and we'll, you and I will work on that together, and we'll do a show on that um, in the very near future. Is that all right? I would love that. Okay. Let's stay in touch for sure, and we will do that program. Jody Bolson-Raybould is Independent Member of Parliament for Vancouver Granville. She's the former Attorney General and Minister of Justice for Canada, and um, daughter of a First Nations hereditary chief, lawyer, and... I said to her off the phone, off the air just a few minutes ago, I said, uh, I try not to be a fan of politicians. It's not something that works well for me, but I am a fan of Miss Wilson-Raybould because she has earned the respect of people in this country by standing up for what matters and standing up to a prime minister and a prime minister's office. And uh, we know as much as I think we're going to be able to find out 
uh, about the SNC-Lavalin case, which isn't going to stop me from asking questions. Uh, Jody, thank you very much for coming on the program. And thank you for, for having me. I appreciate being here. Let me start with very difficult issues that this country is facing. And uh, today, uh, the issue is one of race and intolerance in light of the uh, horror rampage against the Afsal family in uh, London, Ontario. The uh, funeral is today. And then Quebec is moving forward with its Bill 21, of course, which has been described as a direct government endorsement of intolerance. Where, what do we need to do? Where are we? What's, what's the issue of tolerance, race, religion? Where are we in this country right now? Well, I, I mean, I join um, so many people, everyone across the country, in, in uh, recognizing and remembering and honoring the lives of that beautiful family that was murdered. Um, I mean, we have to, um, when talking about Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, um, relationships with respect to Indigenous peoples in this country, um, I'm hearing and seeing Canadians speaking out necessarily. We have to call out racism. We have to call out intolerance. And we have to keep these issues um, top of mind on our agenda. And um, simply because we're heading into um, soon uh, a federal election and political parties are wanting to gain as many votes as possible, that is not a reason to run roughshod over the foundations and the values in this country, that being an appreciation of diversity and an actual real understanding that um, as Canadians, um, you know, the fundamental values that we hold are ones of equality and inclusion and embracing diversity, which makes us stronger. Those are the values that I was raised with, and those are the values that I stand up for as a proud independent member of parliament. Yeah. Uh, we've seen thousands and thousands of Canadians gather in, uh, in vigils and expressions of sorrow and solidarity for the Afsal family and great concern for, 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 where we, for, for the issues that we have to deal with. But there also seems to me a public determination to do exactly that. The question is, what will official Canada do? So I'll ask you this. Do you have faith in an inquiry into the discovery of the remains of 215 children in Kamloops at the residential school? Because you've called on Mr. Trudeau to uphold his commitment for transformative change in relations with Indigenous people. Do you have confidence that this is going to be done uh, properly with with forethought and then proper follow-up and commitment to the whole issue? Well, I mean, I will say that, um, I mean, we have seen report after report, um, you know, dating back to 1996 with respect to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which expressed um, the must-needed um, solutions um, facing Indigenous issues in this country through to having the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, um, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, calls to action and while I will say there has been some movement made um, this government this prime minister has not followed through on his promises and we need to hold him to account so do I have trust um, or faith that something is going to move as a result 
I hope so, but um, I think that um, for me, and I know many Indigenous leaders and Canadians across the country, that, that hope and that trust in this government and in this Prime Minister to do the right thing, to stop taking half measures or or just speaking in terms of promises uh, um, and turning that those promises into action, it has waned. <laughs> and um, I mean, I've said before, this Prime Minister still has time to do the right thing, to do the right thing by those 215 children and and residential school survivors um, across the country, to do the right thing in terms of transformative change. Um, he gave a speech, you probably heard it, on February the 14th, 2018, where he promised to move from denying Indigenous people's rights to actually um, implementing and recognizing those rights uh, and he has not moved on that transformative promise and we need to we need to hold them to account mm-hmm. um, your upcoming book is titled Indian in the cabinet uh, with the word Indian in quotation marks I don't want to read anything into it but uh, I, I have to ask you I mean I want to ask you should I read into this that uh, even though I said I wasn't going to uh, that <laughs> As Federal Minister of Justice and Attorney General, were you treated differently or somehow, well, differently then, let's use that, um, as the non, um, I don't know how to phrase this, as, let's, let's put it this way, were you treated differently because you were a First Nation Cabinet Minister? Well, I think that, I mean, that's a lot of what I go into talking about in my book that's going to be released in, in October. Um, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, my experience um, as um, the first Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General, um, uh, it had a definite had its pros and it had its cons. Um, on the con side, I realized that no matter what table one sits around, there is a degree of marginalization based on um, racialized and gendered terms. I experienced this. Um, you know, I was incredibly proud um, to serve over three years as the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, and we were able to accomplish some significant things. Um, and I was of the view that I was placed in that role. Certainly, I have background and experience, but I came to that role with a different world view, um, being a proud Indigenous person in Canada. And, um, you know, the status quo was something or is something that is very entrenched and different world views or different ways of looking at things um, based on consensus-based decision-making, based on not having um, partisan considerations, but actually having meaningful discussions around issues and bringing forward um, you know, different solutions was not something that was fully embraced. And, and that was a realization that I um, certainly had and still have um, and recognized that the word Indian um, used in the title of my upcoming book is, is um, um, something that I experienced in being treated like an Indian versus a proud Indigenous person. I look forward to your book. Um, Jody, let me go back, if, uh, if I may, for just... Well, I want to talk to you about the, uh, about the um, residential schools and the tragedy at Kamloops. And it's not just Kamloops. We're, we're going to, I'm sure, be hearing more now because people in this country are demanding answers. Also want uh, position and answers 
from the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope has not apologized. I'll be speaking with an expert on uh, theology and the church later on this hour who believes that the hierarchy in the church is doing whatever it can to deflect from uh, what the responsibilities are. How do you assess the non-response from the church? Well, I mean, I think it's important um, to, to recognize and acknowledge that there are many Indigenous pe- leaders and people, residential school survivors, that as in the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action to have a papal apology. I believe that's important. Also, disclosing all of the documents um, that they um, may continue to hold to survivors is important. Um, and I think that people will continue to pursue that. And even the government of Canada, the prime minister, has pursued that. But I will say, um, in listening to the prime minister calling on the Pope to apologize, while important, um, that apology, the federal government, and this is my concern, cannot continue to offload their responsibility to do what's right with respect to Indigenous peoples. And I I mean, I appreciate the federal government speaking about supporting um, the Kamloops and other communities, because there will be more mass graves reported, um, to, to do the necessary investigations and have those investigations and memorialization led by communities. But beyond that, the foundations of solutions in shifting this relationship um, are dependent upon the federal government getting their own house in order, changing their colonial racist laws, policies, and practices. This is what the Prime Minister promised to do. This is what the Prime Minister has not done. And um, on both flanks of, of what I just said, that's where Canadians need to hold this government to account. Yeah. Uh, The nation followed each moment uh, during the parliamentary hearings on how you were treated by the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office as Federal Minister of Justice and Attorney General when you refused to interfere with the federal prosecutors and pushed them to agree to pursue a deferred prosecution agreement with uh, SNC-Lavalin, which Mr. Trudeau and the PMO demanded of you, this is what we how much we know. The conflict of interest in Parliamentary Ethics Commission was very blunt in his assessment of what you faced. Mario Dion wrote, Mm -hmm. in part, the authority of the Prime Minister and his office was used to circumvent, undermine, and ultimately attempt to discredit the decision um, of the Director of Public Prosecutions, as well as the authority of Ms. Wilson-Raybould as the Crown's Chief Law Officer. What can you tell us about... What you, what, I know there's this limited amount that you can share with us, but what can you tell us? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do uh, not continue to plug this book, but I do go into it and, and um, a little bit um, in terms of SNC in my upcoming book. But what can I tell you? I, I mean, I was, um, and I've reflected on this so much, catapulted into the national spotlight um, and did my very public walk from the front of the government benches to the back corner of the House of Commons. And, and I have to say, Roy, I would, I would not change anything that I did. I was very confident and understood my role as the Attorney General and my role being to not have Politico people the Prime Minister or otherwise, interfere in a prosecution um, and standing up for the rule of law, which is which is what I did and I would, would do again. Um, I, I think it's a, a something that we as Canadians need to consider how there can be potential wrongdoing. And Mario Dion, as you said, did come out with very 
forthright with his findings, um, but how um, politics, how the institutions of government work in this country, wherein you have a small group of people, the executive, the cabinet running the country, and sometimes um, in those closed-door discussions um, where decisions are made, sometimes the, and this is where I can't get into a lot of detail, but the reality of cabinet confidentiality is used as a shield to hide activity that is taking place. Um, This was, um, uh, potentially is the case with respect to SNC, but um, it just makes me think about how many number of examples over the years um, where, you know, similar realities uh, and decisions and actions have been taken behind closed doors out of sight and out of the um, ability to be accountable to Canadians for those decisions. Yeah. Uh, we've spoken on this program with uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who also find himself on the uh, receiving end of some rather unflattering and uh, uh, questionable remarks by Mr. Trudeau, but I, I won't take you there. I've s- spoken with the Admiral about it uh, off-air, but... Um, yeah, yeah there's, there, there are... I, you use the word spite, and it's not the first time I've heard that word used in relation to a PM or a prime minister's office. It can be spiteful. It can be a very difficult circumstance. Uh, and I only have two and a half minutes, so I'm going to move on, as though, although I want to stay with this issue. But let's move on. You voted against supporting yeah. the uh, BQ motion to affirm Quebec's right to arbitrarily amend the Constitution. The opposition parties, they went along with the Bloc Quebecois. Um, why did you make the decision you made? Well, I, I mean, I read the um, the wording of of the block motion. It was speaking about um, unilaterally changing the the constitution. The wording about Quebec and provinces. There was a lot of concerning um, words within that motion, and I spoke out and said nay to what's called a unanimous consent motion because, and I thought that other people were going to say nay as well. Um, to my surprise, nobody did. Um, so I. I unilaterally stopped that. But, I mean, issues around amending the Constitution should not be dealt with by way of unanimous consent motions. They should be debated. They should be understood in terms of the impacts that, that um, you know, changing the Constitution has, and they should be in compliance with our amending formulas. Um, so I think there's a time and a place and an important conversation to have around the Constitution, but it's certainly not by way of a consent motion. And, and I, you know, I believe fundamentally that there are things that are bigger than politics, that are bigger than making sure that we secure votes in Quebec, and the rule of law and the Constitution is one of those things. So I would, I would do the same again in that case as I did um, the other day. Well, I'm glad you did that, because I was looking at the other parties and thinking about what they were doing. I thought... You know, don't you get it? Um, even in a, in a selfish way, I mean, they, they should be protecting the constitution of the country, and they and they weren't doing that. And it's, it's not up to the prime minister to say, "Well, Quebec and French is a minority situation in North America, so go ahead and amend the constitution." That's not the way it works. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah, there's 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 some decisions that, as elected leaders, and in particular leaders of parties or the prime minister, I mean, there's some decisions that you might have to make that will upset that people, um, but that's what leadership is all about. I mean, yep. we want to elect leaders that will make the right decisions and that will, will explain why they made them. And we want to be able to trust that they'll do that. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 